Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Anastasia Karklinia Gabriel. She's a brand strategist who uses her expertise as a formerly trained cultural analyst to build strategy in the intersection of culture, brand, and innovation. With a PhD in culture and identity studies, she has sought to provide specialized expertise in semiotics, social impact, and DEI for global brands, including Disney, Nike, Ulta Beauty, Bacardi, Samsung, Hinge, Diageo, and eBay. As a scholar of U of Culture and Scholar, Dr. Gabrielle is routinely invited to contribute critical perspectives on issues of identity, inclusion, and cultural fluency in advertising and beyond. To her work, she brings over 10 years of experience as a grassroots activist in anti-racist and social justice movements, which informs her approach to cultural relevance, social impact in business, and what it means to do principled, values-driven work. So Anastasia, it's great to have you on the deep dive with me. How are you feeling today? Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. I am doing very well and excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, for those who are listening to this this episode, I'm a little masked up because unfortunately at the time of recording this, I did test positive for COVID the week before. So I'm I'm feeling great, which is why we're recording this episode and I'm really excited to, to do that. But to whatever extent I sound a little muffled and less charismatic than I might normally, that's why I'm wearing a mask. But I think we're going to be more than okay. So that's just my little disclaimer at the top of an episode, hoping to elicit some sympathy and moving on to more important things. You know, I, I came to get familiar with your work and your perspective through the miracles and, and imperfect algorithms of LinkedIn. And I'm not sure how, but you know, you sometimes just see things on LinkedIn. Someone like in your world likes something or or shares it or or however. And what attracted me beyond the shared Duke relationship mm-hmm. is a a way in which you you very clearly articulated the issues of the day that matter to you in a setting where people very rarely do that. So I wanted to really give you an opportunity at the very beginning beyond the the introduction about your work and in your um, academic backgrounds and all of that to kind of give us a more you know bird's eye view of how you came to not only doing the type of work that you do but expressing why it matters to you in such a distinct and clear way oh what a good question uh, to start oh, with I, I, I start off rolling <laughs> so we, that's all that's- good. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. When commotion doesn't come from my side, <laughs> I'm always happy. So don't even okay. sweat it. Go for it. Um, okay. What a good question to start with. I come from a tradition of grassroots activism that has sort of evolved and developed during my time in the United States as someone who came here as an immigrant uh, when I was 18 years old, but really took root early on when I was growing up as a young person, a teenager in Latvia, Eastern Europe. 
and finding myself in an environment, specifically in a post-communist, post-Soviet environment, where critical thought and outspokenness and social consciousness were not necessarily encouraged and were actively frowned upon. So growing up in Eastern Europe, I found myself being very much attracted to histories of social movements, to histories of feminism and anti-racism and anti-fascism in a society and specifically in a community that was deeply and inherently apolitical. And on top of that, sort of opposed specifically to the political and social consciousness of people who are socialized as girls or read as girls. So that's sort of where uh, my own personal history begins in a, in a kind of somewhat of a rebellion against the environment in which I was growing up and being very much drawn to histories of collective resistance and social transformation and change that, given the environment that I grew up with, with which was fraught with a lot of intergenerational trauma, lack of emotional health and psychological well-being provided me with some sense of hope um, that change was possible. And it really kind of matured, I guess, in, shall I say, a style of public intellectual work that I engage in now through my migration to the United States as a young white immigrant who came to the south of the U.S. without much knowledge of the environment that I was arriving to, of the historical um, and cultural background of the place that I was now calling my home. And over the years, I have been deeply inspired and invigorated by histories of social resistance, but specifically by histories of anti-racist resistance and the tradition of Black radical struggle um, in which I trained as an academic for the next 10 years. And I think that's where I draw most of my inspiration in terms of my own personal history, but also our collective histories and lineages in my current, sort of say, I guess, social activism in some ways and public intellectual work on corporate platforms like LinkedIn and specifically in my current industry, which is marketing, advertising, and cultural insights research. So all of that you might have seen me post or speak about with what I can only hope can be described as some sense of conviction is inspired very much deeply um, by these histories, those of my own and the histories that I was honored and privileged to learn from. Now, I think the answer is, is one that always opens up more inquiry, right? Which I which I think is one of the more invigorating things about having an opportunity to do this. It's, it's why I usually don't spend a lot of time with a lot of deep, hard written questions because the answers themselves will send me down different different roads. And I want to spend a little bit more time on that immigrant experience. It's something that that comes up quite often on the show, you know, Listeners, well, long listeners will know I'm of a family. I come from a family of immigrants. Many of my guests usually have some sort of immigrant background, often being literally immigrants themselves or being first generation. So that's a, a common refrain in the story. Like getting to your experience, you know, how do you reconcile your commitment to and willingness to, you know, engage in in what we'll call like black radical political traditions when 
so many other people that are born here, not only do they not engage in this kind of history, they actively either work against its foundation or deny its existence. So how did how did you manage to avoid that that other road? I think a lot of it I owe to some of my exposure to social movements and activism and critical consciousness before my arrival to the United States, um, even as I was admittedly very ignorant about domestic politics. So I was, you know, as a teenager, I was very outspoken about U.S. foreign policy and critical of it, uh, while, you know, not having experience of living within the United States and being surprised, to say the least, when I found myself uh, in Durham, North Carolina, as a white woman who came from a very multi-ethnic, multiracial school that encouraged cross-cultural communication, that encouraged sort of understanding across religious, cultural, racial, and ethnic lines. I think in my case, I was able to benefit from having distance from the United States and arriving here with perhaps a different lens and able to distance myself and observe an environment in which I was seen and I was a white person, yet also feeling like I was arriving to a new environment in which I had to also engage in a sort of level of critical observation to understand how to adapt to this new environment as an 18-year-old Russian slash Latvian Eastern European who has never visited uh, the place where it is that I was arriving to for my university education. And I wouldn't say that my path towards some kind of consciousness was very straightforward. I had certainly encountered in myself resistance to certain ideas, uh, for example, to my own whiteness as someone who never had to think of myself as white before leaving all white country in which I was born. But essentially, arriving to some sense of understanding that something else was going on that was unspoken, was deeply unspoken around me. By actually leaving the United States and um, spending five or six months um, in Accra, Ghana, taking classes in Pan-African thought and you know, engaging in a study removed from the United States and being able to absorb that knowledge sort of in, you know, in isolation, but also being in Ghana, uh, which with its rich anti-colonial history and getting that Pan-African perspective from outside of the United States. And it was really the moment of migrating back to the United States to continue my, my studies that I felt as if some of, of the knowledge that I had acquired and been exposed to clicked in what I saw upon returning in what I knew to be unspoken under the social fabric, in the interactions, in the way that I was treated in public walking alongside my Black male friends who were also international students from various African countries, um, that knowledge and that experience clicked for me in a way that I had the language, the terminology, the frameworks, and the knowledge of history to make sense of it and to understand what it was that was happening, why it was happening, and where were the roots of some of the prejudice and outright hatred that I saw my friends experience, but also the roots of my own discomfort with initially acknowledging my whiteness, owning it, and reconciling it in my own activism, uh, which is why I am, you know, aside from being an ex-academic, very passionate about the role of knowledge 
the role of tradition and lineage, intellectual lineage and political lineage in transforming ourselves, largely because I have experienced that in my own self as a white person who arrived to this country with very little insight and ended up feeling very, not only inspired, transformed, but empowered by knowledge to actually show up as somebody else or in another way rather, and use that knowledge to guide the way that I interact with people, the way that I shape my activism or the way that I choose to show up on LinkedIn, for example, in corporate spaces. And, you know, this is work that all of us have to do to a certain extent in the sense that, you know, one of the things I I resist, I try to resist to do is to generalize that all experiences are, are going to be the same. I also don't think there's one way to interact with the world while also acknowledging at the same time that there are not these kind of like fuzzy truths that I think like conservatives would would prefer that we believe in, right? That like the way in which the world work is not just a function of our opinions, right? And we don't live purely in a marketplace of ideas, right? So I try to dismantle their their corrosive way of, of thinking whenever I can. But having said that, I think it gives us an opportunity to explore the the feelings behind doing any sort of deep work that asks us to ask questions about the assumptions about how we see the world, whether that is a through a racial lens, a nation state lens, a gender lens, an identity lens, any number, right, of, of things that we can kind of put in that mix. And it and it does come with with discomfort and you and you mentioned that. So I want to spend just a, a little bit more or more time on that because I, I feel like that discomfort can also be the root of then larger societal displacements and of anger and, and all the rest of it. So as an outsider, quote unquote outsider, to the American experience, what is it that makes Americans so uncomfortable with any puncturing of their idea of exceptionalism? I think that, well, I guess I might speak specifically to the experience of whiteness because that is what experientially is most close to me. And that is my lived experience. You know, upon arriving to the United States as a first year freshman in college, I did experience that cultural shock of encountering American exceptionalism. And it's funny that you mentioned specifically that and, and talk about it and using those words. There was, or there is rather, a kind of grandiosity in the American psyche that initially was very strange to me as a non-American who was arriving here And it was perplexing to me that people in this country, particularly white Americans, had an impression that the rest of the world was thinking about, quote unquote, America, about American freedoms, right? And was so eager to take them away. And that was completely not my experience, you know, having grown up in Eastern Europe and then spent uh, two years living in Hong Kong and traveling around uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia specifically, and then also, you know, living in Ghana and Uganda and having other various travel experiences. So that disconnect was one of the most interesting cultural experiences in regards to things that I did not expect. And over the years, I have come to realize, and perhaps that might be obvious, that become behind that 
grandiosity behind that sense of exceptionalism is a lot of insecurity and a lot of fragility that is masked by it. And I think in my my own personal experiences in anti-racism, for example, right, and in attempting to infuse uh, some critical consciousness in conversations that I have um, specifically with white Americans, but also with the general public that consumes my content. Um, there's always connection that I want to make between our ability to tolerate discomfort with topics surrounding race, gender, sexuality, you know, the history of American empire, and our own personal histories that actually have to do a lot with familial traumas, with the way that we come into this world, the way that social violences make us believe that we are not enough, that, you know, we are deficient in some way. And I mean, we can go in a kind of rabbit hole of conversation around what gender-based violence in the family, in the, you know, in the family unit has on people. Uh, But I see a very kind of direct connection between the way that uh, white supremacist patriarchy shows up in our families, not only in the United States, but globally, the way that a lot of us are raised and the damage that a lot of us have to undo as we grow up. And then our, on the other hand, our ability to tolerate discomfort, tolerate criticism of our actions, for example, criticism of our whiteness or our masculinity, and being able to hold that while also understanding that does not that does not make us bad, that does not make us deficient, you know, and being able to hold that vulnerably and still show up. So to me, that's a very long answer, what, what I think is a complex question. What it is that I think is a deciding factor in people's difficulty tolerating discomfort, specifically in this, this type of work that deals with race, gender, sexuality, the ability not to personalize it, and be vulnerable enough to hold that discomfort and be willing to work through it, which I think, to summarize, has a lot to do with how we are raised and how patriarchy shows up in the way that we develop emotionally and mentally. And, you know, long answers and complex questions should be the subtitle of this of this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <I love> it. <laughs> both, of, both of those are completely allowed. And, you know, when you were when you were giving your answer, I'm, I'm writing down more notes. And one of one of the things that that stuck out is this notion of not being enough. And this is a, a psychological state of being. It's an emotional state of being. It's a physical state of being. And it, and it seems like and I'm thinking this through as I as I asked the question that so much of of this is tied to the machinations of, of capitalism. There has to be a, a feeling, a kind of cooked in feeling of want and desire in order for all of, of this to run. Clearly, it looks differently now than it looked in 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. But as a prevailing cultural narrative, I usually offer to people that that's been the one, right? That idea of the market has been the prevailing kind of undertone. So having said that and understanding that we do live in a market-based economy, social system, and kind of cultural sphere, that not being enough feeling seems to be so, you know, linked to that. How do we start to untangle the ways in which those forces work, especially because an addendum, 
complex question. Both of us work in and out of spaces that are marketing, marketing and advertising spaces, which feed that, right? So how do we start to chip away or untie or whatever metaphor one wants to interject into that to start to create something that looks and feels different? I think that reflecting on this question of working in marketing and advertising, for example, which is something that I think about a lot, um, having gone through from academia, which is corporatized in many ways, equally so, but is often romanticized as this kind of purist space that it kind of exists separate from capitalism and fortress of capital that are more apparent in spaces like marketing and advertising, for example. I often reflect on the power of culture to shape ideas and on the role of advertising and marketing historically in shaping ideas that have been outright harmful. As someone who was trained as a cultural theorist, I think it's no surprise that some of the giants of the cultural studies tradition, um, specifically thinking about Stuart Hall here, um, have turned to advertising to study the ways in which extremely harmful ideas have been perpetuated through media, through popular culture, but also the way that these ideas have evolved through time and not only evolved, but the way that they have been challenged and contested. And so with that sort of intellectual history in mind, I would like to think that that undoing, that change happens in that act of contestation Returning back to, I guess, the beginning of the conversation where you pointed out the way that our paths cross is, for me, the importance of contesting power, the importance of showing up in spaces in which a lot of us uh, were not meant to belong, were not meant to be listened to, were not meant to have a voice, and being able to contest those systems of power, but really systems of representation that are articulating, normalizing certain ideas that we know not to be true or we, not, we know not to be complete. So I think for me, that sort of summarizes what I find to be most critical. And that is more specifically to think of representation, not only as presence in the rooms, that might perpetuate ways of being in society and the world um, that we find unacceptable and in many cases immoral and ethical, uh, but actually thinking about representation as an active contestation of these ideas and a commitment to what Dr. Cornel West talks as um, kind of sense of integrity and moral courage in the face of power that attempts over and over again to essentialize ideas about us, our communities, our struggles um, in ways that are deeply incomplete. You know, when, when we can invoke Stuart Hall and, and <laughs> Brother West in a conversation, I know I'm already in a, in a good place for a variety of reasons. And I want to stay on, on this point a little bit because, you know, when I, when I think about, for example, even in your bio or just generally you kind of hear these terms, you know, we're, you know, we're at the intersection of like culture, brand, innovation, right? Just as like touch point things, cap points. And I, I think about like when I use things like that and other people use things like that to whatever degree the words might be different, right? I think most people think like Venn diagram, 
right? Of, of some sort. And lately, what I've been reflecting on, and I would love to get your thoughts on it, is that these things, whether it's these terms or other terms, they can intersect, but not always. And they often intersect to whatever degree they do with sometimes unequal power exchange, right? The the power of, and I'm just going to name a big ass company that everybody knows, like a Coca-Cola or like a Nike, the usual examples, right? Of kind of big conglomerate brands, right? Their power can be outsized relative to someone in a culture space, to whatever degree that we are measuring and thinking about culture. The values of those relationships can be different. So when, you know, with that as sort of a, a frame, like how do we think about, or how do you think about rather, when we use words like intersection, truly managing those relationships where they don't kind of reinforce the prevailing relationship that we've been talking about since this conversation started, right? Like the marketplace versus these more community and social activism spaces. Mm-hmm. Hmm. How do we manage that? I think the first thing that comes to mind I mean, kind of sort of connects to my previous point around contesting power and I guess, shall I add, holding power accountable. When I think of, you know, companies like Coca-Cola, Nike, etc., I think we can think of ourselves as being in this kind of cultural moment of unprecedented co-optation of culture and community by these giant brands and companies that, you know, in this particular moment of in time are finding it profitable and lucrative to plug in to say, you know, to conversations that are happening in culture at a grassroots level in a way that was completely unimaginable or unprecedented, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. I mean, even three, four years ago, to be honest. And so, you know, when I think about kind of the intersections of things that you mentioned and equal power dynamics, the role of public intellectual work and critical thinking in these spaces to me becomes even more pivotal um, in a sense that it has to raise a question of how those entities that outweigh that power can be held accountable. And in some ways, I am slightly pessimistic about this because I would like to think that we have infused corporate spaces with some sense of critical consciousness and at the same time, I do observe within the branding space a kind of comfort with ideas that are easy and that sound good and that maybe make for great impactful campaigns without actually engaging in analysis precisely what you have been bringing up, the marketplace, capital, the structure, essentially. And so, you know, in... Perhaps to answer your question more specifically and precisely, in thinking about intersections of these things, perhaps we need to start thinking about the structure of these things. Because when we think about structures and systems, it inevitably forces us to think about hierarchies and power and the way that that power is distributed versus intersections, which I think has been uh, other part of radical activist language have been co-opted in the corporate spaces, you know, through the co-optation of the term intersectionality has lost that kind of critical attention to hierarchy as 
the organizing principle of these intersections that we speak of that are not at all horizontal um, or flattened and of equal footing. Those are my initial thoughts. And, you know, co-option is like a, a big like word for me. Like I, I, I used to co-host a, another show a few years ago called Two Dope Boys in a Podcast. So shout out and, and rest in peace to Michael Brooks and the rest of the team that was a part of that. And I remember at the end of one of our years together, we kind of got a bunch of contributors to just share some ideas on what they thought the future was all about or, or things that they should be aware of. And I remember this, this might've been like 2015 or 16, it was either 15 going into 16 or 16 going into 17. And one of the things I highlighted as, as something that I was very like concerned about or kind of keeping an eye on was the notion of co-option, right? It was, it was something that in my kind of later stage professional life, I just saw everywhere, right? All the cool things to whatever degree we're talking about cool, eventually got like sucked up by like douchebags and assholes, right? So it started in one place and, and would inevitably end in another, right? I think most recently, I mean, maybe this wasn't even co-option, maybe this was just straight like jive hustle with Black Lives Matter, right? Like, you know, this in incredible movement with re very relevant political and social points to make and, and, and work to be done the, some of the organizers of sort of the corporatized part of that, I want to make distinctions about these things, you know, spend their time raising money and influencer houses and a whole bunch of other things. That's just clearly co-option of a movement or out, outright grift of a movement. So, you know, it, it came up right there in your answer. It's been gnawing at me for a decade or more. We are not going to solve that here in this conversation, but I think as thoughtful people thinking about this, how do we, knowing that co-option is there, how do we take that into account and still do culture-based work with organizations that are not always going to have the real values at heart, right? Like most of these institutions, they just want to make money, right? And we need money to survive, right? I am not falling on an angel platform here. <laughs> what I'm trying to just figure out is how do we manage all those things? Because the stakes of co-option to me seem to be more high, higher than ever, right? So Absolutely. that's sort of the broad base ask there. And I know there's a question in there somewhere and maybe you'll navigate through an answer. <laughs> I will do my best. I think the answer to me lies in the collective, because as I heard you speaking, my first thought was, well, it is about moral integrity. It is, it is about speaking in the face of power. It is about being willing to sacrifice and lose. At the same time, I'm well aware, you know, as an immigrant in this country from a low-income family for most of my adult life, that for a lot of people, the stakes are high. And speaking up, for example, in the spaces, you know, working uh, with entities that might not share our values is not always an option and might often, I mean, pose threats and losses that are too much to bear in a society that is already not conducive to human well-being and welfare and where we have to not only struggle for the truth, but struggle for survival and ability to provide for ourselves and our families and have health care, et cetera. And that leads me to my thought about the way in which I think the answer lies in the collective. And by that, I mean in finding not just 
allyship, the word that I detest, uh, but real solidarity between, you know, with people who are sharing spaces with us in these larger places, spaces that are hostile to the values that we share. And that really is sort of inspired by my experience as a labor organizer um, during my graduate school years and seeing the power of people coming together to voice dissent in the face of corporation, in that case, my university, my alma mater, who was very much dedicated to squashing that dissent and seeing ways in which very practical ways lived experiences of coalition building. And in a way that coalition building is, in my opinion, the only thing that can hold these entities accountable when there is such a huge balance, imbalance of power. And I think that, you know, in doing cultural work, in working with a lot of entities that perhaps engage in some level of cooptation on a macro level and perhaps have people who are well-intentioned and are you know, willing to do something differently but are bound and restricted by the politics of the institution, I think we can take a lesson from labor organizing and labor politics in the way that we organize ourselves, our ideas, what it is that we stand for within the spaces that we navigate you know, whether that's agency world, for example. Unfortunately, I don't think that is happening to the degree that I would like to see it happen, even at the level of discourse. But I think when we think about how to do this work with integrity, that's the only tangible answer that I can come up with that I think would actually make a difference in the way that we do this work and whether we participate in cooptation or whether we find it amongst ourselves the collective desires or commitment to push against it. I, I love that a labor came up always. This is a pro labor environment and, and household. So that's super critical. But before I, I, I get off on a tangent, as I'm prone to do, I want to, you said something I think that was really important, which is coalition building. I too hate allyship. I've highlighted solidarity is a, is a deeper thing, right? It's an active way in which you find and work with others toward a common cause, right? Allyship is just a bunch of words, right? And, and blacking out your Instagram and all the rest of that is bullshit. But that coalition building, you know, this is another thing I've been kind of wrestling with. So maybe it's a little therapy for me as we kind of go through this, is there's, there's so much like trauma built into all of our experiences. I think we talked about that at the very beginning, right? You come into this, all of this that we're dealing with, and there's patriarchy, there's familial generational pains that kind of are, are passed on to whatever extent we, we deal with those or have the tools to deal with them as a society is, is obviously very questionable. And I am a little loath to, to lean on therapy language, not because I have a particular feeling about therapy, but I'm, I'm working through an un, a unsolved thesis right now about how that's kind of infected spaces like this, right? Where therapy is very individually focused and it kind of gets us out of like community, right? So again, that coalition building is community work, right? But it's also steeped in us walking into it with whatever we're walking into it to. Maybe not always the right language, not always the same understanding, different levels of where we're coming from. And so I'm, I'm curious as to, in your experiences, how you've found success in really the nuts and bolts of 
coalition building. Because to, to me, it feels like it's something that's not talked about as much. Like we feel we can like teamwork ourselves through coalition. And, and that doesn't quite feel right to me. So I wanted to get your your thoughts on it. In full transparency, most of coalitions that I have been a part of uh, fell apart and were unsuccessful okay. precisely. That's, that's fair. Yeah, right? and precisely for the reasons that you mentioned. And I think, you know, and it is, you know, most of political work that I have been a part of was messy and painful and disappointing and heart-wrenching in many ways. And a lot of it, had to do with what does it mean to organize together against power when, first of all, each of us has very different understanding what it means to win, what it means to win together, win collectively, win individually, what it means to have power, you know, and a lot of various political debates uh, and nuances that, you know, in coalitions we have not necessarily work through specifically on the left and you know a lot of continue to have a lot of I mean I think this is like a decades-long history that we are wrestling with but in terms of success I don't know if I would you know want to define success as like winning a campaign or winning a union things like that because in if I think about it through that lens, we haven't had a lot of success and you know um, in progressive movements uh, on the local level that I was part of. Not to say that there haven't been victories, but I think for me personally, success has been defined through collective willingness to wade through that messy, to continue showing up, to be willing to collectively hold each other when it is not easy, when there is a lot of contestation and disagreement and the rehearsal of our very individual, you know, similar and different traumas. And I think for me, success has been defined by taking something away from that into the next chapter and not necessarily being focused on, you know, the success of a particular coalition. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know if my answer is particularly coherent. But as you were talking, I was thinking about Fred Moden's book, The Undercommons. Fred Moden, for those who are not familiar, being one of the seminal Black studies thinkers and scholars in the contemporary academia, in which he talks about coalition as the recognition that is, excuse my language, it's fucked up for you too, and it's killing you too, no matter how much more slowly. So to me, that is, has been the success of coalition is nurturing that sense of interdependence and interconnectedness, which to circle back to your point about therapy is often missing from kind of individualistic westernized ideas of transformation. And we, we can use all kinds of words like that on this show. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, believe me, there's, there's when it, when it comes to beautiful, beautiful, sweet profanity, there's um, <laughs> there's no whole bars, even though I do control my worst instincts or maybe my best instincts when it comes to using those, that kind of language. But I, I do actually believe there's such a eloquence and poetry in really good profanity. So feel feel free to indulge. Um, and again, we mentioned another great like like Fred Moten. And you know, I I love the the honesty about how coalition work is is hard, and it. It gives me uh, an opportunity to kind of think about the way culture works, right? And how we often 
it's informal and formal, right? We mirror behavior that we see. You know, we talked a little bit about how Stuart Hall will talk about how advertising has in, encouraged and, and fed certain negative behaviors and stereotypes. We see this all the time. There's tons of books and abstracts filled with these kind of examples. And I, and I wonder if when it comes to a successful coalition building and the concept of winning, if that's also something that we have very few cultural models for in the sense like, you know, I'm a complete dork. And if I think about the end of Return of the Jedi, right, with Star Wars, right, we see the second Death Star blows up, the Ewoks are all dancing, there's fireworks. So that models to a 10-year-old at the time, right, like a successful campaign of the so-called plucky underdogs that kind of took down the Empire, right? But there's not really very useful pop culture, culture, whatever you want to call it, modeling for kind of the messy, drawn-out, deep generational work <laughs> that's required to like kind of get us to a better place, right? Like to whatever extent you kind of agree with that very simplistic frame, like how do we start to have culture conversations that look and feel different, right? They're not zero-sum games of win and lose, and they're not that sort of like, you know, anti-villain shit that we've kind of lived with maybe in this past 15, 20 years of pop culture, which still has the superimposed patriarchy and who gets to be an anti-villain and all that. There's still a lot of bullshit in that space, right? So how do we start to tell those more complex cultural stories that get us to a place to kind of model perhaps different things? Mm. You asked a question that allows me to talk a little bit about my doctoral dissertation, which was on... Oh, see, I didn't even know that. <laughs> which was on the power of radical imagination and specifically abolitionist thought and thinking. And in a way that, uh, specifically in my dissertation, Black artists, thinkers, and theorists have engaged with the practice of abolitionist thought and thinking and imagining in how they think about transformation and social change. I think, you know, as you were talking, I thought of the role of abolition and abolitionist imagination in a way in which, for example, in the cooptation of Black Lives Matter movement, it has been completely erased from the mainstream discourse, while abolition and abolitionist politics are or have been very much at the core of the movement and at the core of the kind of future and the kind of victories and wins and successes that the thinkers, organizers, activists, organic intellectuals, and academics in the movement are imagining for all of us. I think you're so right to point out in the way that traditional, you know, but traditional, I mean, normative ideas around victories have, you know, something to do or a lot to do with villains and heroes, which are such inherently individualistic narratives. And when we go back to studying and sitting with the art, the poetry, the literature of speculative imagination, I think it allows us to access models of collective victories, of collective thinking, of collective imagining that are otherwise not accessible to us in popular culture. And I think these texts, some of which I had spent some time studying, are, you know, so marginal to popular culture and to what we value as far as 
arts and humanities goes in kind of mainstream society, precisely because I think that imagination is deeply dangerous. It's deeply threatening to structure, to hierarchy, to return um, to what I was saying previously, precisely because it asks us to think about a future where we don't become an influencer or a celebrity or we, you know, and our success story is being in Forbes 30 under 30, but where we imagine systems in which all people have housing and all people, regardless of their origins or where they have committed or not committed in their lifetime, are not subjected to lifetime in cages and where people have access to mental health care and, you know, and access to medical care more broadly, right? So to me, the answer is, in short, in the kind of imagination that we have accessible to us. And that's why when people ask me, well, what should I read? What should I, what should I look at? How do I become you know, more conscious? My answer is always to consider things that are not part of the mainstream discourse, uh, but are inspiring and fueling other modes of thinking in ways that to me are like, deeply powerful and threatening to the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't co-sign enough on the power of, of abolitionist thinking. It, it came up in a, in a workshop that I um, co-led at an event in Texas prior to coming back home. So I probably got this COVID from there. So thanks, Texas, for your lawlessness and lack of regard for human life <laughs> and dignity from 1848 to the present. <laughs> They're consistent. Um and and I'm actually doing a, a talk next week, a uh, similar topic. So anything that, that brings up the, the thinkers in, the, in that space, because I've, I've found that to your point, it is, it's become the space that allows for the most inquiry of us changing the way in which we see everything. And it has also historical roots that, that go back to how people use the word abolition in the beginning, mm -hmm. right? So... I find it useful from a from a historical perspective and also from a future perspective, which is an amazing thing. We're getting down to the last bit of time that we have, but I didn't want to leave without having an opportunity to talk about the the countervailing notions. And what I mean by countervailing notions is that for all of the work that any or all of us have done in in whether it's it's political work or social work or activism work or however you want to define that. There's, there's always at least equal to sometimes more forces on the other side that are trying to maybe not keep things the same, maybe make them worse or make them better, depending on their perspective. As I said in, in, in Austin at a particular time in this conversation, we might all be sitting around thinking that we're in some state of crisis, but there's many people in the world who think this shit is awesome, right? That everything that we might gnash our teeth or wail against, they're like, Phew. This is amazing. So glad that there's less freedom in the world, right? Because that's what they want. Not everybody wants freedom, quote unquote, right? Some people want the freedom to oppress. So having said that, despite the marketing and advertising and, and all corporate America's complete and abject failure when it comes to making any system that works for any of us, but particularly improving on diversity and inclusion to an extent that that's a serious term, there is a pushback against this notion of wokeness and, and how that is permeating corporate spaces. Wokeness is a stupid term. So I'm prefacing that I'm using the parlance of the day as much as I do not believe in 
wokeism or woke culture or cancel culture. All of that is bullshit. If you use those words, you're a fucking idiot. So it's in, in like policy, right? If you're using those as serious positions, you're a fucking idiot. So but having said that, um, the rise of, of that as an idea that is so prevailing as a pushback, what does that tell us about where we're going in kind of corporate spaces. So I, I didn't want to leave out without having an opportunity to talk about that because you see it as someone who, again, public intellectual, you say things on LinkedIn. I'm sure you, I know 100%. I've seen it publicly on shit you posted. I can't imagine what's in individual inboxes and DMs from, from not just you, but many people who are actively engaged in these spaces. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to share about that. Then we'll get into the final two segments of the show. Yeah. Um, so if I understood you correctly, kind of the question you asked is where this is going, right? And I think, I mean, wokeness, cancel culture, woke culture, to me is a convenient narrative of de-radicalization, de-radicalization, uh, de-radicalization. That is the word I was looking for, uh, which is to say that for corporate America, which is to even say America as such, um, not even, you know, feels redundant to say corporate America. I mean, I think that that narrative is convenient and it's deeply, deeply ideological. I think that's one of the things that I hope to convey in some of my public work is thinking about these narratives through a critical lens as not things that exist in the world and just float around, but things that do things politically and things that shape discourse, shape what's desired, what's valued, and what's frowned upon. So to give you an example, I could go on LinkedIn and type in my you know, post, Black Lives Matter, allyship, as a white person, you know, I want to do good, I'm here for you. I will likely get a lot of likes and a lot of clout. I can go and say, end to prison slavery, and I will likely not get a lot of work. So to me, that's like an example of the ways in which that these narratives are not just there, but they are normative. And by that, I mean that they are there to discipline people, that they are there to discipline what thought is valued, what thought is considered valuable, considered to be you know, have some sort of social capital attached to it and thought that is more and more considered unreasonable. And I think there is an interesting tension in a way that social movements, whether it's a Black Lives Matter movement or whether that's feminist rhetoric, the more we're kind of moving into the mainstream, the less radical thought and radical critical consciousness I see in that incorporation. So I think that's a very interesting tension because we're seeing more of it uh, but we're also seeing a lot more easy and convenient narratives that are not as not leading us anywhere good. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Absolutely, and you know, I'm 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 reacting most to like I've seen agencies and not mainstream industry agency, but you know these kind of niche douchebags who will like brand themselves as like anti woke agency, right? Like. If you're just tired of not doing the work you want to do, come join us because we're paragons of some truth and reality. And I'm like, fuck out of here. <laughs> you know, it's, 
stupid thing to say. Right. Well, even <laughs> I, I've seen, um, I, I, I've seen and I have myself corrected uh, on LinkedIn some agencies who put up an offering being like, you know, be an anti-racist brand. Don't be a victim of cancel culture. Don't get canceled. And, you know, to your point that some of agencies and, you know, I won't name them, but I actually genuinely don't remember uh, who it was. But to me, the fact that people who are writing these offerings, you know, to their clients and are using that kind of language uh, that is very much, you know, belongs to right-wing rhetoric of um, sort of delegitimizing and minimizing voices on the left and, you know, the progressive movements. The fact that they're using that tells me that they're not necessarily well-versed in the kind of conversations that we should be having. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be talking about it, but maybe they shouldn't be talking about it just yet. And maybe, you know, there are some uh, collective learning and education that we need to do. And I I guess my last point on this is going to be, I think that this kind of co-optation, this kind of mainstreaming of quote-unquote woke culture is kind of in this dual tension. On one hand, if you don't embody a particular identity, you shouldn't speak about things, right? There's a lot of, you know, I see a lot of white people like embody a lot of guilt um, and a lot of like purity politics in the way that it becomes a performance. Allyship becomes a performance of goodness. You know, I'm a good white person, but also at the same time where anybody and everybody now gets to speak about, you know, grassroots organizing, about community concerns and issues, about social justice without actually having any real sustainable engagement in these communities, you know, if not over time, that even in the last two years or so. Yeah, absolutely. You're ability to flow in and out of spaces and comment or not comment or be engaged or not engaged is in and of itself a moment of of um political reality right some of us don't have an option to choose what we engage mm-hmm. with you know to to Absolutely. whatever extent we are engaging some of us are just living in the engagement is coming knocking on, <laughs> right. knocking on our door right whether we wanted it or not mm-hmm engagement. So there's there's always that. So I, I want to get to the, the final two segments of the show. And the first one is off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions, um, not of a serious note, I hope, but just to get us easing into the final section, which is the drop. So the first question is, you know, as someone who is a, a thinker on many levels, a writer, you do lots of different things. What is your one essential tool or thing that you need in order to be productive what's your go-to productivity if i don't have this lights out Hmm. if i don't have this lights out i think being able to disconnect from and i'm not really good at that from where i am right now at my desk spending ungodly hours here uh thank you capitalism and honestly recently uh it's gonna sound cheesy but I have been helped tremendously by my dog, who is a 10-month-old girl. And I've been really thinking a lot about what it means to 
nurture relationships and bonds with non-humans. Um, and I guess that's like my academic side coming in or like animal studies and, you know, the way that capitalism, I mean, not to get too academic <laughs> and jump back into the deep stuff, but the way that we have regard for human life and not necessarily non-human life or other forms of life. So lately what's been keeping me afloat is spending time with this like human being, not human being, actually not human being that I have this special bond with and building with her. And so that's kind of allowed me to disconnect from the human world of overwork and overload and just be in this like a very different reality with another creature that I am learning and, and learning from. That's awesome. That's awesome. Always shout out to the pets. Um, <laughs> now you spent time, a lot of time in North Carolina. We mentioned the, the Duke relationship. You have multiple degrees from Duke. If you have to think about your your Duke experience, what's what's one word or maybe a couple of words that sort of sum up the Duke, the time on Duke's, you know, very scenic campus? <laughs> oh, uh, one word, chanting. <laughs> I when I was at Duke, um, I you know, for my undergrad and my PhD, I was involved in a lot of student activism, and I discovered in me. Uh, this deep voice for chanting that I didn't know I had as a teenager and young person, I was very soft-spoken and I was, you know, I was, as I guess I've worked on my self-esteem over many years and my own healing, I have found my voice to be louder and like sturdier, which was not the case as I was growing up. But then when I think about my time at Duke and my favorite memories are just going around the quad and leading a group of people in a bunch of chants and especially being asked to chant and do that on Duke's campus has always been like a memory that doesn't have much to do with, I guess, the classroom or the academics, yeah. but had a lot to do with practicing what I learned in the classroom outside of it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's, it's good that they get a different kind of chanting than the chanting <laughs> that they're used to, right? It's not always right. about <laughs> basketball, guys. And my final off the dome question, again, sort of a, a broad win window, but as, as someone who has, again, spent time engaged in, you know, understanding history and the history of movements and social change and political change, who is a, a historical figure that if you could spend time with, whether formal time or informal time, that, that you would really love that opportunity to do that? Oh, as you were talking, a bunch of names popped in my mind. And I thought, oh, who would I pick? Um, but then my mind settled on one person, and that would be W.B. Du Bois, who is a thinker that I spend a lot of time with as part of my dissertation, but also who kind of um, in many ways was not an unproblematic person in history, but represents the genius to me of radical intellectual thought of what it means to dedicate your life to study and to evolve and to change and to revise one's position, but also what it means to experiment and be deeply dedicated to one's own intellectual and creative processes. And so not many people know that W.E.B. Du Bois was a creative writer and a sci-fi writer and has written science fiction. And, you know, one of the things that I worked on during my PhD is a science fiction sh short story that was discovered 100 years later 
after Du Bois wrote it in 1908 or 1910, around then. And so that is the person that I spent a lot of time with in my dissertation and that I would love <laughs> to have sat with and really sat at the feet of um, in terms of my own study. Absolutely. Du Bois is, uh, I think, truly, you, you said evolved, and, and that's such a critical word because I think at a time when so so much of the discourse is about us being locked into these static positions. He was someone who dramatically changed his positions from um, his early academic work to literally his his death. <laughs> you know, yes, in Ghana. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, ironically, right? I, he he made it there. <laughs> yeah. And I think that I mean, just to add a little bit here is I think he represents uh, in some ways what it is that some of the contemporary, you know, identity politics, for lack of a better word, um, are missing, right? It's this, like, the tradition of deep self-reflection and evolution as far as our ideas um, yeah, go. Ab- and the second person would have to be Stuart Hall. I just have to, I just have to add it there. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheat code goes to Stuart Hall. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity to share anything with with our listeners that that we think they should have on their radar so i'll go first the the drop that i have today is actually a movie that i saw maybe a couple of weeks ago by the time we're recording this so by the time people listen to it it'll be i don't know four it would have been four weeks ago maybe five and it's uh the latest movie by emma thompson is available by via hulu here in the states but to our global listeners you got to find it where you can find it and it's called um, Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. And it's just a, a really interesting, character-driven movie. I'm not going to be do one of those. They just don't make movies like that anymore that are quiet <laughs> films and, you know, all the rest of that bullshit. Like, I like the noisy films, too. But this is a good one. And again, it's called Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. I'm not going to give it away, but it's definitely worth a watch. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that's my drop. Okay. Well, when I thought about this, I thought, oh, what political or activist text I'm going to recommend. But then I decided not to do that. And I'm going to uh, recommend a book that you probably heard of. That was the latest book that I read, which is a memoir by Viola Davis, Finding Me, as someone who uh, has never been into celebrity culture and was, you know, has been for most of my life kind of critical of it, I picked up this book and it was one of the most beautiful memoirs that I had ever read or listened to. I listened to it on a road trip um, to North Carolina, out of all places. And I found myself incredibly moved by it. It is an amazing story of resilience, of dedication to craft, and what it means to experience love and mentorship that gives us permission to pursue who it is that we truly are and what it is that we're truly passionate about. So yeah, for so many hours as I was listening to this book on the road, I just had goosebumps and tears in my eyes. So I do highly recommend it. Oh, that's awesome. Does she narrate it as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's magical. It's absolutely, you know, narrated by Viola Davis makes um, the experience of listening to the book that much more real and personal and intimate. Oh, that's awesome. That's a that's a genre that, as a reader, I don't usually spend a lot of time in. I, I like Viola Davis, and she's got a, actually a kick-ass movie about to come out this this fall. If you see the trailer, that's going to be good. Oh, I did not know this. I will have to look that up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll send that trailer to you. It's going to mm-hmm. be crazy. 
that's that's I sent it to my crew and that's gonna be first weekend kind of money for for, for this movie. Uh-huh. But anyway, I, I, I do appreciate her as an actress and um it's wonderful to hear that that memoir. So it might this might be one of my first celebrity memoirs that I pick up as someone who like I said Please do. I, I you know, I think it is very well worth it. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love when the the drop gives me something to check out as well. That's the purpose of it. So this has been a wonderful conversation, Anastasia. I want to thank you for for joining me on, on the deep dive and allowing, you know, my complex questions and your long answers. That's the way this show works. So this has been an amazing ride. Thank you so much for being on the show. No, Phil, thank you. This is an absolute pleasure. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I hope that it is not the last one. Oh, absolutely not. You know, we got a Duke thing going here. We got to keep this together. All right. So, for sure, for sure. Thanks again. Thank you. You can listen to the Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.